Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 29. Last time we continued our analysis of the less talked about powers of the Korean War, moving to the story in London to examine up to the point that the British committed their land forces to fight alongside their Commonwealth allies. In this Whopper episode, we continue our narrative where we'll look at how the Anglo-American relationship was affected by the escalation of the war, the escalation of General MacArthur's ambitions for Korea, and the escalation of tensions, even those of a nuclear variety. I don't want to waste any time because we have, as you can tell, an awful lot to get through. So without any further ado, let's get into it. I will now take you to September 1950.
The song of the week this week is brought to you by 1956. 1956 is the Patreon-exclusive series for all patrons who pay $5 or more a month. If you would like to access this fascinating series that is pretty much a sequel to the Korean War and goes into all sorts of things that we touch upon in the Korean War, then look no further than 1956. If you're wondering what 1956 sounds like, if you're wondering if it's for you or not, make sure to check out the preview episode that I've released into the feed, because, yeah, it's something I think you guys will really enjoy. And since this is my job, I, of course, want you to sign up and send me your monies, but not in a selfish way, in a way that I want to spread the history around. By investing in When Diplomacy Fails, you're investing in history podcasting, and you're ensuring that When Diplomacy Fails reaches new heights. Of course, I super, super appreciate you, and I think you'll super appreciate the content that is coming your way. If you're interested, if the Suez Crisis or the de-Stalinization fallout results in the Soviet Union in the eventful year of 1956 sound like issues you'll be interested in, then make sure and check it out. Go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or simply click on the link in the description below. Alrighty guys, so the song of the week this week takes a little bit of explaining. It's not as straightforward as some of the other ones where I kind of just plug in, well, the song and you listen away to it, because I took this song from a radio program that is also tied up with all the other content that I'm taking from the archive. So, a long story short, <laughs> you won't be able to find a link to this song because it's kind of hard to track down, but it is by a fairly well-known American singer. Her name was Joe Stafford, and she was pretty darn active throughout the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and in this case, she is singing a song for the American Heart Association, which was a charity program that was on American radio in February 1950. I think you'll enjoy it, guys. In any case, we'll be back with episode 29 of the Korean War when it's done. Back home again in Indiana And it seems that I can see The gleaming candlelight Still shining Brigadier Brian Parrott was on his way to Korea. Waiting like so many of his countrymen in Hong Kong as London prepared them for the war in Korea, Parrott recalled his experience in this calm outpost of the still-living British Empire. I can remember no lecture on the political situation in Korea, 
Parrot said. But I do remember a colour film showing the devastating effects on the male body of venereal disease. The showing of this film caused great amusement in the regiment as the gunner who had been selected to be the medical officer's assistant watched the film and fainted. We wondered how, if he fainted at the sight of this film, how would he cope with real blood? It was a valid question, because by the time Parrot arrived in Korea, he would have been able to find real blood in abundance. It was the 20th of December 1952 by the time Parrot arrived in Pusan. Like so many UN soldiers sent to fight in the Korean War after the first year of truly transformative combat, Parrot and his men were to spend their days holding on, digging in, inching forward, and then pulling ever so slightly back. Parrot was one of thousands of men tasked with continuing the fight on the ground while the diplomats talked, the art of talking while fighting. Although Parrot's story takes place some way ahead of our current narrative, in September 1950, the foundations for the static state of affairs he would be thrust into were already being laid. Flushed with soldiers, General MacArthur was growing in confidence, just as several Allied governments were growing in concerns. The Supreme Commander Allied Powers, SCAP, as General Douglas MacArthur was, made people nervous. In early August, he had flown, apparently on his own initiative, to Taiwan to meet with Chiang Kai-shek, at a time when the question of Chinese intervention was particularly sensitive. London, above all, was seeking to protect its position in Hong Kong, and did not under any circumstances want to see the People's Republic of China be given a reason to intervene in the Korean War. London was not the only capital that sent out urgent messages, but by September 15, 1950, MacArthur was becoming something of a law unto himself. The necessary manpower for a counter-attack at the North Korean People's Army was already in the pipeline several weeks before, as the British sent the 1st Battalion Middlesex Regiment and the 1st Battalion Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, who piled into the HMS Unicorn and HMS Ceylon on the 25th of August. The arrival of the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders was something to behold, and as Britain's first soldiers to arrive in South Korea, they were warmly welcomed. Have a listen here to the moment that the men arrived. Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders are very proud to come out here as the first British troops to arrive in Korea and fight alongside our old allies, the Americans. General Walker is very pleased indeed to see this fine contingent of British troops arrive on the battlefront. MacArthur's success at Incheon provoked urgent debate almost from the get-go about the practicalities of advancing beyond Pyongyang and right up to the Yalu River bordering Chinese Manchuria. It was an immensely sensitive issue, and one which had the potential to draw the PRC into the war. The British Prime Minister Clement Attlee would send regular cables to Washington because MacArthur was not beholden to the governments of those men he commanded. Instead, he answered to his president and to the Joint Chiefs in Washington. Increasingly, it was becoming evident that even these limited checks on his authority were becoming ineffective. MacArthur requested and was granted permission to launch something of a probing advance due north. According to his plan, UN forces would launch an advance 60 miles north of Pyongyang and only 50 miles south of the Yalu River. If the Chinese showed no signs of opposing this measure, MacArthur was instructed to use South Korean soldiers only to advance the remaining way northwards until the border was reached. 
On the 1st of October 1950, Pyongyang fell, and MacArthur, delirious with victory, made further grand pronouncements on the soon-to-be-liberated status of the peninsula under Syngman Rhee. This endeared him to Rhee, of course, but not to the British, who wanted to arrange for a UN commission to control the United Korean state, and they certainly didn't want to see the peninsula fall under Rhee's dictatorial, repressive, so-called democratic regime. Ernest Bevan, Britain's foreign secretary, visited New York in mid-September 1950, the HQ of the UN at that time, where he urged the body to take charge of the situation by trotting back out its old 1947 scheme to unify the peninsula. The United Nations Commission on Korea had been established shortly after that date in 1947, but if you'll recall, the refusal of the Soviets, or the North Koreans for that matter, to allow its representatives north of the 38th parallel meant that the UN Commission on Korea acquired the image of a strongly pro-Western organisation, which, well, of course it was, but it was only because Pyongyang and their Soviet allies refused to take any part in its proceedings. Representatives of the UN Commission on Korea had been present in Seoul when the North had been invaded, but they had subsequently been evacuated along with several other Allied personnel. Ernest Bevan's aim was to get the assembled nations to agree on a scheme whereby Korea would essentially be ruled by the United Nations. Through this way, Bevan and his Prime Minister believed that the Chinese would have less cause to oppose and intervene in MacArthur's advance. If they couldn't affect the military situation, Ernest Bevan was at least determined to shape the political realm which housed it. It was also done as a recognised nod to the Chinese concerns, and it did rest sighs of relief from several delegates who genuinely worried that MacArthur was blundering ahead of himself, and that Mao Zedong would surely have cause for concern by this point. Indeed, Mao did have cause for concerns, and he had ordered mobilisation to begin on the 1st of October, the same day that Pyongyang fell, if you remember, but MacArthur continued to act as a law unto himself on the ground. Bevan thus felt somewhat vindicated when a resolution was passed in the UN General Assembly on the 7th of October, but because, if you'll remember again, resolutions passed in the UN General Assembly were not legally binding and could be interpreted in several ways, MacArthur decided to interpret it as his license for unifying Korea under Rhee. October 1950 saw a deluge of cables be sent to the US State Department. MacArthur continued to dismiss Chinese warnings as mere bluff, and he refused to believe that the Chinese would in fact intervene. His talk about being ready to crush the Chinese if they did come in, and his threats to bomb Manchurian and Chinese towns in that event, raised blood pressures in the cabinet and foreign office unbearably high. One permanent undersecretary in the British Foreign Office warned that Korea could become a running sword draining away the strength of the Western powers and reducing their abilities to deal with crises everywhere. And his view was far from the minority. Just as President Truman was about to meet with MacArthur on the 11th of October, Ernest Bevan warned urgently that There should be no doubt whatsoever in the mind of the United States government about the serious consequences that would flow from Chinese intervention in Korea. I consider it vital that General MacArthur should not take reprisals outside Korean territory without express instructions from President Truman. By mid-October 1950, UN forces had driven the North Koreans out of Pyongyang and were established on the line of defence which had been approved by the President all the way back on the 28th of September. For a few precious days, there was a measure of static calm in the situation. 
Suddenly, on the 24th of October, claiming that he had received Truman's approval for just such an advance at the Wake Island meeting, of which conveniently no record of the two's conversation exists, MacArthur drove his forces, American as well as South Korean in spite of the earlier pleas to just use South Koreans, towards the Yalu River. It was there that they encountered the Chinese Communist volunteers, who drove them back to the Chungchung River, in the first notable appearance of Chinese forces in the war. The British cabinet was on fire when it learned that, after all the warnings, the Chinese had in fact intervened. The Foreign Office pressed Washington to agree to a UN invitation to Communist China to send a representative to New York to discuss a ceasefire and future arrangements for Korea. In the meantime, Bevan's subordinates continued to develop schemes to bring the fighting to an end. One was a UN declaration that its forces would remain on the defensive along the 38th parallel, while proposing to the Communists that the rest of North Korea, up to the Yalu, should become a demilitarized zone. It was hoped that such a scheme would ease Mao's fears and demonstrate that the UN were not interested in jeopardising Chinese security. In suggesting this to the State Department on the 13th of November, the British Foreign Office stated that This plan may afford us a means not only of terminating the whole Korean campaign earlier and thus liquidating a costly military commitment in an area of little strategic importance, but also of satisfying the Chinese that the United Nations have no aggressive intent towards Manchuria. MacArthur is dragging us along with him in widespread hostilities, declared an undersecretary for the Far East to the cabinet on the 20th of November. The offensive policy being followed by MacArthur can only lead to a clash with communist China and the extension of the conflict in the Far East, declared Britain's Joint Chiefs the same day. The Joint Chiefs urged British statesmen to communicate our views to the Americans in the most forceful and unequivocal terms. Even while it was accepted that MacArthur had to be restrained now before it was too late, it was also correctly noted that MacArthur wasn't listening to Dean Acheson by this point, and that the Supreme Commander had so convinced himself of the flawlessness of his plan that any opposition was condemned as appeasement, especially handy as an accusation to level, when the opposition came from Britain. Mr. Atchison has very little control over General MacArthur, and, if it is of great importance to stop the offensive, then it may be that a message from the Prime Minister may offer the best way of doing this, as Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan said. Attlee agreed to go to Washington if necessary, but three days later, all such talk would be for naught. No amount of British, or indeed American, pleading could apparently prevent MacArthur's offensive to the Yalu from taking place on the 24th of November, and London's fears of disaster were shown to be only too well-founded when Chinese counterattacks shattered MacArthur's offensive at the end of November, and during December, drove the UN forces in headlong retreat towards the 38th parallel. Over by Christmas, no longer seemed feasible, and the UN forces were plainly in trouble. Incidentally, Washington reacted angrily to this new situation, demanding that a resolution be forced through the General Assembly under the recently enacted Uniting for Peace resolution, condemning the Chinese for their aggression and demanding the application of sanctions against China outside of the Korean War. This would signify a significant escalation of the conflict, and it could potentially result in a full-blown war with the Chinese. The British representative at the United Nations, the brilliantly named Sir Gladwin Jebb, warned London that the United States was insisting on an early vote on its condemnatory resolution, 
and that public and administrative feeling was running high, not only against the Chinese communists, but also against Britain and France. The notions of a Munich mentality and the old chestnut of appeasement were quite wrongly believed to have encouraged Chinese aggression, as critics saw the hand of Chamberlain in everything timid or ineffective. In a speech to the Labour Party conference on the 2nd of October 1950, Ernest Bevan had sought to chastise those that attempted to criticise what even at that point was becoming an unpopular war. Do you think we like it? Ernest Bevan's incredible speech began. Do you think after all the years of fighting we have done in the Labour movement in the hope of getting a peaceful world that we like having to do it? Is there any minister who likes to go down to the House of Commons and ask for £3.6 billion for war? We blamed the Conservatives for knowing Hitler was on the move and not making adequate preparations because they would not go in for collective security. We are in office now, and shall we refuse to do what we called upon others to do, which would have prevented the 1939 war if only they would have done it? While the British had to salvage their reputation in this sphere then, its foreign office was already plainly aghast at the US proposal, which it believed would be interpreted by MacArthur as a carte blanche to extend the air war into mainland China. Even if this was avoided, the additional sanctions likely to be demanded by the US would have the same effect. Britain's Undersecretary of the Far East noted the dilemma by saying that Apart from the immediate effects on our interests in the Far East, we should be faced with a choice between a serious split in Anglo-American relations or joining reluctantly in a war which would divide the Commonwealth, dissipate Western resources and weaken our defences without any corresponding gains. Outraged at having been shown up by the Chinese, MacArthur demanded that a resolution be put to the United Nations to the effect that if they, the People's Republic of China, do not withdraw their troops within 30 days, we shall carry the war into their own country with the objective of destroying their industrial capacity to continue the war. Ernest Bevan obviously rejected this out of hand, and he refused even to consider debating the proposals of a recalcitrant general, but he did liaise with his Prime Minister, who by this point was determined to travel to Washington himself. Clement Attlee arrived in the United States on the 4th of December 1950, determined, in this trip, to bring calm and collected debate to the deteriorating situation in Korea, and to impress upon his American allies of the importance of moderation at this critical hour. Undoubtedly, Attlee had been further pushed by the perhaps somewhat Freudian slip by Truman, who, when asked about what nature a weaponry might be used against China during a press conference on the 30th of November, had seemingly failed to rule out the use of the atomic bomb. Truman declared that the United States would take whatever steps are necessary to meet the military situation. Will that include the atomic bomb? A reporter asked. That includes every weapon we have, the president replied. Mr. President, you said every weapon we have. Does that mean that there has been active consideration of the use of the atomic bomb? There has always been active consideration of its use, Truman replied. In the event, much of the fears surrounding atomic weapons had dissipated by the time Attlee arrived in Washington a few days later, but the British and Americans did spend much time liaising with each other and committing to share information more readily in the future. Public opinion at home in Britain was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with a war that seemed to be controlled by the Americans, who then hoarded and neglected to share any of the information with their so-called allies in Britain. 
Attlee made it clear that this had to change, but his ideas for a peace proposal to the Chinese, on the basis of concessions and the United Nations Security Council, and for a reconsideration of the Taiwan question, were ideas that Truman refused to accept. Truman's staff agreed that opening up peace talks while soldiers were in the retreat would have sent a clear message of weakness to Beijing. There was some hope that the line would stabilise soon, and then, if ever, the time would be right for talking about the peace. Atlee's lack of consideration for such face-saving measures reflected the fact that he wished to avoid, above all, an escalation of war with the Chinese, and that he wished to end the Korean War full stop before it dragged further monies out of Britain's strained coffers. Acheson put something of an exclamation point on the talks when he signalled that Congress would be far less likely to approve measures for Western European defence if the British didn't support Washington in Korea. So Attlee was left with some food for thought, but he came back the next day with some bare facts. The British people, Attlee claimed, would not accept the extension of the war into China, and in any case, such a war would push the People's Republic of China right into Stalin's waiting arms. For the moment, it was not altogether certain that the Chinese and Soviets were on the same page. Would it not be better to cultivate a strong relationship with Mao now in the wider strategic interest? The appeal made little impression, as pretty much all appeals about Mao Zedong did in Washington, but in subsequent private talks between the President and Prime Minister, much of the old cracks in the Anglo-American alliance appeared to be papered over. Attlee was at least assured that the Truman administration was anxious to avoid a general war in the Far East, and was opposed to any air action against China that could precipitate it. Private remarks by General Omar Bradley and other American officials during the talks convinced the British Prime Minister that Washington was aware of the need, eventually, to call MacArthur to order. Both sides agreed that the UN should stay on its precarious footholds in Korea, while Attlee accepted that there could be no question of any immediate surrender of Taiwan, and denied that he sought the slippery slope of concession. If this meeting seems somewhat inconclusive, then Attlee seems to have been content to pursue additional avenues for his policy aims. In communication with the Indian Prime Minister, Attlee hoped to find some sort of diplomatic bridge over to China, whereupon the war could be ended on a satisfying basis, but he was to be met with further disappointment in this mission. Although a resolution was put forward proposing the establishment of a three-man commission tasked with reaching a peace agreement on the 12th of December, and although Acheson agreed to it in principle, his insistence that a Chinese refusal should bring fresh sanctions and condemnation drew the ire of the British yet again. I, for my part, declared Ernest Bevan, consider the conclusion of an early ceasefire to be of paramount importance as a first step in the settlement of the Korean problem and also as a prelude to the settlement of other existing issues in the Far East. The Americans, evidently, were not as eager to produce a peace. In any case, by the 22nd of December, the People's Republic of China had rejected these peace overtures, which meant that Acheson sought to implement his fresh sanctions, as he had promised to do. London boiled over at this needless escalation of tensions, but Sir Gladwin Jebb, Britain's ambassador to the United Nations, cabled home the reasonable point that day to the effect that There is no point in our pressing the Americans to make concessions, since they will not achieve any results if the Chinese win in the field, while if they lose, we shall have appeased too soon. Ernest Bevan accepted this advice, but he still wished to arrange some kind of damage control policy, 
in a bid to prevent what could very easily explode into World War III. He wrote in the minutes of a cabinet meeting in late December that I feel Russia and China are going to fight it out in Korea, and the United States will have to face it. This does not mean war, but the line shall be made secure and held. 1951 was evidently going to be an important year for the peace of the world. Bevan tried again in January with a proposal that included the assent of all Commonwealth Prime Ministers in a bid to add to the pressure. A step-by-step peace process would follow with the Chinese, followed by the withdrawal of the UN forces, and then an establishment of a new UN Commission for Korea to secure the region. To entice the Chinese, Bevan again proposed the carrot of Taiwan. When reminded that this proposal would irk the Americans, the British Foreign Secretary agreed, but then he noted that If war was to be avoided, entailing weakening the defences of the democracies, a serious crisis in the United Nations, further sacrifices by the Americans, and a heavy strain on relations between the United States and many of her friends, then no possibility of a negotiated and fair settlement should be neglected. But Gladwin Jeb in the United Nations politely refused to present the proposal to his peers in the Assembly, saying that Sorry to sound a gloomy note, but I must say that unless we hold the line in Korea, it does not seem to me that your proposal has any chance of success. In replying in this way to his foreign secretary, Gladwin Jeb was following Diplomacy 101, which dictated that unless one had leverage on the military field, negotiations were always destined to stall if they began at all. For the United Nations to meet with some kind of success in its peace overtures, the Chinese had to feel the pressure, which they wouldn't do until their massive offensive were held and their advance pushed back. In the course of some chatter between the British and Commonwealth Prime Ministers, it was proposed that all efforts should be made to block Acheson's attempt to put forward more condemnatory policies towards China, and instead, it would be wise for the UN to essentially cut off talks with the Chinese and focus instead on the affairs of the battlefield. By winning on the ground in Korea, they could then have a better chance of winning at the negotiating table. In on the discussion was Sir William Strang, Britain's permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office. While up to this point Strang had largely been, as per his job description, working behind the scenes to gather support and intel for Britain's diplomatic position, Strang let off a cable in the first week of January 1951 in which he described the frustrations of working with the United States. While it is somewhat lengthy, as a primary source record of how America's allies felt about her occasional hiccups, it makes for a juicy listening, so let's see what Strang had to say for himself. He wrote, The United States administration often behaves insufferably to its allies. Americans are apt to behave insufferably to each other. Their natural characteristics and their constitutional processes are what they are, and it does little good to get angry about them. The United States has come out of the two great wars stronger than it went into them and can think and talk of a third world war more light-heartedly than we Europeans can. The Americans are new to the responsibilities of world power and have not learned to tolerate the frustrations and bitterness of defeat. This sets us a very difficult problem in our relations with the US. Our best course is to state our views plainly and firmly and patiently in private and in public where necessary but always with the intention of working for agreement rather than for a breach. The problem should not be an insoluble one, because, in the last resort, the Americans want the same thing we do. We have, in fact, no alternative but to work with them. 
for us to join the Soviet bloc would be unthinkable. The establishment of a neutral or independent European bloc, maneuvering between the Soviet Union and the United States, has been repeatedly examined and often rejected. Though the Americans often behave as though our views and interests were of little regard to them, in the last resort they know they must rely on us. This strengthens our position in dealing with them. Our problem is also to deflect the Americans from unwise or dangerous courses without making a breach in the United Front. This is not an easy operation, but then, whatever some people might think, diplomacy is not one of the easier professions. What it calls for above all things is patience. Patience, indeed, for January proved just as taxing to one's patience as every other month had been. Again, the British requested the formation of a new ceasefire group under a different name, and again the Chinese rejected it on the 17th of January 1951. Then the Americans pushed for their condemnation of the Chinese once more, and London again sought to delay and oppose the introduction of this resolution. To the credit of the British, they remained firm and unfazed by the repeated sticks used by Washington regarding what would happen in Congress if America's allies continued to neglect to support her resolutions, a veiled threat that, unless you support us to the letter in Korea, Mr Britain, we won't support you in Europe. But Attlee rejected these ideas, while Ernest Bevan declared that he was most profoundly disturbed at the American attitude on the grounds that it would certainly lead to a war with China. Indeed, while the condemnatory proposal was in the air, the Chinese did approach the Canadians through a back channel, which they almost certainly wouldn't have done had Atchison's provocative proposal to label China as the de facto aggressor been passed. In light of this new opportunity for peace and the reasonable proposals for a temporary ceasefire by the Chinese therein, the British Foreign Office in Ernest Bevan's absence due to his recurring illnesses, one of the great problems the Foreign Secretary faced at this time, sent a terse note to Washington, advising, in what may be described as salty language, that the condemnatory proposals must be dropped, so long as the Chinese peace overtures were being considered, or else disaster would result. If, however, the Americans would not postpone the inflammatory proposal while such ceasefire talks were in discussion, then, as the Foreign Office elucidated on the 23rd of January 1951, I am afraid that it will be necessary for us to engage in some plain speaking with the United States in an attempt to drive home to them that we regard their present tactics towards both China and the United Nations as ill-considered in the interests of us all. But the Foreign Office wasn't finished yet, since these cables were received by Sir Oliver Franks, Britain's ambassador in Washington, the official in charge of writing up the Foreign Office cable plainly felt free enough to speak off the cuff, confident that Franks would communicate the contents of the cable effectively, and that, considering the jeopardy the Americans were placing a ceasefire in, perhaps a little bit of saltiness between allies was necessary. The roaring Foreign Office cable continued with something of a rant towards American foreign policy in the Far East, saying... I am well aware that the reason for these high-pressure methods is the United States' urgent need of the United Nations as an umbrella to cover them in their Far Eastern policy. I am bound to wonder whether the US really desire a settlement, or whether they are not spoiling for a chance to hit back at China by any means at their disposal, reckless of the consequences for others, prompted mainly by the mortification over the failure of their policy towards China. It must be brought home to the United States 
that it is not the rest of the world which is out of step with them, but their own public opinion which is out on a limb by itself. We are continually hearing from the United States government and from the American press about the effect in the United States if we do not support them, if we are dragged into supporting them against our better judgment solely out of the desire to preserve our unity towards the outside world, they must be made to realise that they are taking grave risks with us. The British people may be prepared to follow them on this occasion, and outer unity may be preserved, but cracks may well form beneath the surface and will not so easily survive subsequent trials. I think that it will be salutary for us to let them know the effect which will be produced here if they try to drag us on into following a line which we cannot honestly endorse and which we have made so many ineffective attempts to dissuade them from making. After receiving this cable from his foreign office back home, the British ambassador in Washington, Sir Oliver Franks, managed to persuade Atchison to hold back on the condemnation proposal for a few days. But in the meantime, Atchison simply bypassed the British and flipped the Commonwealth ministers over to Washington's side by claiming that the proposal wasn't as serious as its reputation suggested and that such a condemnation of China was in any event necessary to demonstrate the seriousness of the United Nations. When Franks discovered this and notified the cabinet, Attlee's government remained resolute and said they would actually vote against the United States' resolution if Atchison decided to propose his condemnation of China before actually agreeing to ceasefire talks. Some officials recorded their horror at this prospect, since it would have resulted in London, by default, voting in the same bloc as the Soviet Union. I fear it will have a very adverse effect on British interests generally, claimed one official, but... Clement Attlee stood his ground. As the tempo of British anxiety increased, Gladwin Jebb, British ambassador to the United Nations, noted on the inclusion of what was called the Good Offices Commission in the American proposal. This aspect of the American proposal stipulated that mediation efforts would be sought, but that if the Chinese did what they had done before, a condemnation of the People's Republic of China as the aggressor in the conflict would be the penalty. Note that mediation and ceasefire were not the same things, but still, Gladwin Jeb, isolated, voted in favour of the proposal after all, on the 1st of February. As Washington no doubt expected, the Chinese looked at the fine print of what the proposal was designed to do, thought mediation sounded nice, and then saw the plan to condemn them as the aggressor, and withdrew in outrage. Clement Attlee's government collectively facepalmed. In the meantime, though, matters on the battlefield were, predictably enough, easing the tension at home. The Chinese, after some initial successes, were pushed across the Han River and back beyond the 38th parallel in late January. Although nobody could have known for sure in this conveyor belt of a conflict, the moving up and down in the peninsula and the swapping of land and capitals and advantages by both sides reached a watershed moment at this point. The communists crossed northwards over the 38th, never to return and the Allies seemed to possess the initiative again. Herbert Morrison, the replacement as British Foreign Secretary for the ailing Ernest Bevan, attempted in mid-March 1951 to push forward with a new peace deal, one which would see the 14 nations operating in Korea declare their desire for a status quo antebellum arrangement, one which would surely ease Chinese fears that the UN attempted to go away conquering up the peninsula once again. 
Yet, these proposals from the new man in the Foreign Office likely went unnoticed by the Americans, which was probably the main target of this proposal, after the Chinese of course, because of the utter preoccupation suffered by Washington at this point. General MacArthur was, by March 1951, taking up a great deal of the Truman administration's time. We finally come to the issue of MacArthur boiling over at long last, but we will spend time, ample time in future episodes, detailing the chasm between the President and the General, so there's no need to spend much time on that issue here. For now though, it suffices to note that the British were hoping to ease the concerns of the Chinese with their so-called 14 Nations proposal, since part of the arrangement would have forced MacArthur to declare his intention not to advance beyond the 38th parallel. This, of course, MacArthur would not do, because advancing beyond the 38th was a large part of his wider plan to bring the war to China, a plan which also included the strategic bombing of targets in Manchuria, and perhaps even the usage of the atomic bomb if necessary. By the first week of April, the British cabinet was united in calling for MacArthur's dismissal. As Britain's Defence Committee put it, he, MacArthur, seems to want a war with China. We do not. Britain's Foreign Office and its entire diplomatic and governmental apparatus was greatly soothed by the news of MacArthur's dismissal on the 11th of April 1951, but it remained to be seen how the President would act. As Gladwin Jebb put it, he feared that Truman may well still lean towards the worst of all policy of insisting on the evacuation of Korea, coupled with the declaration of war on the Peking government. The main trouble at present seems to be that, in spite of the President's amputation of the tail, it is still to some extent wagging the dog. Indeed, Britain wasn't out of the woods yet. Washington remained deeply concerned that a large-scale and successful Chinese offensive would vindicate MacArthur in the eyes of the American public, and so they impressed upon the British of the importance of agreeing to bomb certain positions in Manchuria if the Chinese reached a certain point in a future advance. Mercifully for the frayed nerves of Clement Attlee's cabinet, the efforts by the Chinese to attack in May and June 1951 demonstrated that the initially devastating thrust of the People's Volunteer Army had been blunted and the Chinese had evidently run out of steam. The UN forces were now plainly in the ascent. Bear in mind that all this time, the original 14 Nations peace plan had been repeatedly postponed by the British at America's request. As the first anniversary of the outbreak of the Korean War approached, the British were under increasing pressure to do something to change the news. A further effort by Jeb to propose the peace overtures was met with the news that the Soviets and Americans were in secret talks for a mediated ceasefire and that Britain should hold off for a few more days. Indeed, after a few weeks crumbling under the sustained military pressure that the now better organised UN command could exert, the Chinese did agree to meet the Americans at Kaesong in mid-July 1951. The peace negotiations were hardly ideal, as we'll see in a future episode, and the British were not directly involved, but Attlee declared himself confident in the American diplomatic approaches, such as they were. As the talks were developing, the US Assistant Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, called on his fellow ambassador, with the apparently friendly cable to the effect that he, Dean Rusk, was glad to see me because he did not seem to have heard from the British Foreign Office lately and he hoped that this meant we were in close agreement. Indeed, having beaten a dead horse for over six months, 
the only thing London could agree with Washington about was that peace was long overdue in this fiasco of a war. Only time would tell if the Anglo-American Axis could stand the further tests in store for it, but the Korean War had certainly contained its share of bumps for this natural alliance. Perhaps by the time of its exhausting end in summer 1953, both Washington and London had learned a great deal more about each other than they had previously cared to know. For the moment, it seemed, this experience would make the Anglo-American bloc stronger. Until, of course, certain events took place three years later in a seemingly detached Egyptian theatre. This long-form examination of the Anglo-American relationship has given us a window into what was going on in the background of the world's diplomacy while the Korean War waged on. It must be said, while the two English-speaking powers held much in common, their previous experiences had played a profound impact in moulding how each saw the world. The British continued to see themselves as wiser, more moderate, and more in tune with their fellow moderates in world opinion. Americans were brash, they wore their hearts on their sleeves, and were more likely to take diplomatic snubs personally, since they didn't have the experience or maturity in being a world power to properly deal with them. Americans, similarly, saw the British interchangeably as timid, slow-moving, and frustratingly inconsistent at times. Critically, as the Korean War demonstrated, both powers had a very different policy towards China in mind. Having already established her China policy, and having attempted to break down barriers in the name of security in the Far East and better trade deals, London found itself consistently fighting against the apparent willingness of the Americans to push the envelope in Asia, where in the British view, the far more important theatres in the Cold War like Europe or the Middle East should come first. Britain's prejudices towards the Americans, and the latent arrogance they claimed to despise so much in Washington's policy, was an air which they often exuded themselves in an effort to offer sage advice to the younger Americans. As Ernest Bevan told the Indian Prime Minister in January 1951, The United States is a young country, and the administration was too apt to take unreflecting plunges. We had made it our business to try to restrain them. We also have to remember that British policymakers were intently occupied throughout this period in developing their own policy towards Europe, in particular in Germany, where the West German Federal Republic was only a couple of years old. In their frequent talks with the French and Americans, the British clearly granted far more importance to these issues, and this explains their frustration with the Americans, as well as the surprisingly frequent American stick that Washington may be forced to roll back on its support of Western European defence in the event that Britain didn't support her enough in Korea. The Truman administration knew full well that the British would rather talk about Europe and leave the Asiatics to themselves, yet time and again they wrested declarations of loyalty from London to engage in theatres which Britain only had a marginal interest in. As a kind of concluding statement on the new world in which British policymakers found themselves in the early 1950s, Pearson Dixon, a Deputy Undersecretary of State at this point, provided the following epilogue as to the changes in British policy, saying, If we cannot entirely change American policy, then we must, it seems to me, resign ourselves to a role of counsellor and moderator. We have already had considerable effect in this role, but we should accept the disagreeable conclusion, in the end, that we must allow the United States to take the lead and follow, or at least not break with them. It is difficult for us, after centuries of leading others, to resign ourselves to the position of allowing another and greater power 
to lead. It should be added, as a final point, that much credit must go to Sir Oliver Franks, the man, if you'll remember, who held the position of British Ambassador to Washington for maintaining the relationship between Washington and London, even during the difficult times. Oliver Franks happened to have a great relationship with Dean Acheson, who told him regularly what some apparently fiery policies on the surface actually meant in practice. For example, that proposal to condemn the Chinese as aggressors was not a reflection of genuine American sentiment, but an effort to appease the far right in America, which continued to demand harsher action against the Chinese. While it did push China away, it also piled on pressure and provided an opportunity for the West to talk more seriously about a ceasefire. Franks was a critical window into Washington, and he was essential during the Korean War for keeping dialogue channels open. Diplomacy 101, as Sir Oliver Franks well appreciated, necessitated the promise of talks at all times. Next time, we will be changing our focus completely to look at a neglected area of the Korean War debate. What were the North Koreans doing when the war broke out? How did Kim Il-sung's relationship with Stalin impact the war effort? And how close did the North come to running MacArthur's men off their Pusan perimeter in summer 1950 before it was even truly established? All of these are questions we'll address next time, but until then, history friends, my name is Zach and you've been listening to an absolute whopper-sized episode on the Korean War, episode 29. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.